Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your unfailing character, for your unfailing love for us, and for your unfailing Sabbath. Jesus, today we enter into a state of rest. We're thankful that from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, we can dedicate to you. Jesus, you've dedicated your whole life to us. And at this moment, we just want to give you back some of that praise and some of that gratitude. So Jesus, I pray that your name is uplifted in this message today and in the songs that we sing and in the lives that we live when we leave this place. We pray this all in your powerful, wonderful, holy, precious name. Amen. Okay, so before we do a little recap of last week, I want to make sure that you all have one of these, a worship guide. If you don't have one, raise your hand. We have some wonderful elders and deacons that can get those to you, so just keep your hands held high and they'll come through. A few of the great things about this worship guide is there are recalibrate questions that you can follow along with as we go through the sermon. And also there's this connect card, and it's on perforated paper, so you can rip it right out. And every week, Renee Leiden fills out one of these connect cards, and it's just so wonderful because us as pastors, we're able to pray for her in specific ways, and we're able to connect more. So whether you want to receive the online bulletin, whether you have questions, comments, or if you want to do a Bible study with one of the pastors, fill one of these out and put them in one of the three giving altars. There's two at the back and one up here. So we'd love to pray for you, we'd love to connect with you, and this is a great way for us to do that. If you would like to open up your pew Bibles um, to the book of Ruth, that's on page 246. We'll be jumping around a little bit in the book of Ruth, but um, if you wanna follow along, that's where we'll be starting. So page 246 in your pew Bibles. So, for those of you who weren't here last week, and for those of you who want a little bit of a refresher of what we talked about, I wanna give a quick summary of um, the beginning of Ruth. So, last week we mainly discussed the characters of Ruth and Orpha, right? We weighed their comparisons and their contrasts, and we found that both had pretty identical situations. Both were married to the sons of Naomi, and both were widowed. So when Naomi heard that the Lord was providing food in her land again, she decided it was time to pack up and go home, to get away from the strange land of Moab with its strange God and its strange culture and customs. Her daughters-in-law decided they were gonna set out with her. <clears throat> so as they're on their journey back to Bethlehem with Naomi, somewhere along the way she realizes, she comes to her senses and realizes this isn't the best path for her daughters-in-laws. So. She decides, I want them to have a future, and tells them, go back home. Go back to your families, to your people. So Ruth and Orpah, both in these very similar situations, take drastically different decisions. So Orpah leaves Naomi with a kiss, and they weep. She loves her. She's sad to go. But Ruth clings to her. Ruth clings to Naomi. She denounces her previous life, her family, her people, her gods, and chooses Naomi's people and her God. If you were here last week, you remember that Orpah made the right decision. She made the logical decision. Um, she made the best decision, but maybe not the right one. Her, de her decision was balanced, logical. She probably made a pros and cons list. Um, Orpah did what was expected, and if you remember, that was nothing more, nothing less. Nothing worthy of praise, but nothing worthy of reprimand. Um, nothing extraordinary. 
But remember, it was the extraordinary behavior of Ruth that moved the story from grief to joy and emptiness to fullness. Ruth was extraordinary because she didn't adhere to the status quo. Last week, one of the recalibrate questions I asked you was, is your faith stuck in the status quo? I hope you've had time this week to kind of think that through and process it and evaluate what is causing you to feel stuck and are looking to Jesus and leaning on him to get you unstuck. The thing is, though, once you break the status quo, you have to redefine it. Ruth broke the status quo of what a young Moabite widow should do with her life, but she didn't stop there. Her actions throughout the story prove that she was constantly on the move to redefine it and to redefine herself. Jesus broke the status quo from his very conception, being, being carried by a virgin mother. He continued on in his life and in his ministry to not only break the status quo, but to redefine it. When the Jews looked for a military leader that would deliver them from Roman oppression, they couldn't find him because he was journeying around with a group of fishermen, tax collectors, hanging out with the sinners, the poor, the disabled. When the Pharisees looked to Jesus to draw hard lines on sin and the consequences, he drew theirs in the sand. Healing on the Sabbath day, extending grace to all, dying a sinner's death, the list goes on and on. But Jesus did not only break the status quo, he redefined it. Jesus broke the status quo of what the Jews believed the Old Testament meant by redefining it. Jesus would say, you have heard it said before that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is constantly at work reminding us that the status quo does not define us, but that he defines us. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus breaks down many status quo situations that were chaining people down. If you'll turn to Matthew 5, so flip over from Ruth, Matthew chapter 5, and that's on page 898. And definitely feel free, you can underline this, highlight it, put a little note by it, um, and leave it in the Pew Bibles, take it with you. So Matthew chapter 5 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus not only breaks the chains of these status quos, he redefines them. He reminds us that the status quo of this world is messed up and that we don't need to keep living by those standards. So today, I wanna ask you the first recalibrate question. So if you wanna look in your worship guides at that. The first question is, what personal status quo is weighing you down? What is something that you have believed, whether about yourself or someone else, or the way things ought to be done, that has been a weight on your shoulders, on your relationships, on your life, on your walk with God? And are you willing to search for it and admit that it's been weighing you down? Because without acknowledging it, we won't be able to break or reshape it. You see, it's one thing to break the status quo. That part's pretty easy. Yeah, it takes courage, but almost anyone can do that. It takes real courage, thought, care, and the power of Jesus to redefine and reshape the status quo. The perfect status quo. The way things were meant to be in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and then all of humanity was disrupted and distorted. We went from the way, we went away from the way God had things set up. A place of growth, a place of equality, a place of love, to a place where we push others down to get ahead and grow ourselves. A place of oppression, a place where hate is found more often than love. Jesus comes to break the status quo and to mold it to its original form, to the garden. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why it was so difficult for many people when Jesus walked this earth, and even difficult for us today to understand. They were looking for a Jesus to build up a political system when really, he was just tending the garden. He was redefining our status quo, taking the chains off a world that has felt so oppressed. Jesus breaks and redefines the status quo of death through his resurrection. Jesus breaks and redefines the status quo of equality in his image by respecting and embracing all people, no matter their gender, race, social status, education level. Jesus breaks and redefines the status quo for those who are weak, poor, and sorrowful. Jesus breaks and redefines the status quo of power by bending low to wash the feet of his followers. And Jesus breaks and redefines the status quo of who we are told that we are. No longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters of the all-powerful creator and redeemer. Ruth did not only break the status quo that was weighing her down, but much like Jesus, she reshapes it. She redefined what it meant to be a woman of God, to be a woman who was not born into Israel or into this God, but one who chose the path, cho that chose to make those people her people and chose to make the one true God her God. As we continue on with Ruth's story, we see that she goes back with Naomi from the land of Moab to the land of Judah. We are told at the beginning of chapter two that there's a man who's related to Naomi through her late husband, Elimelech. The author gives us a bit of anticipation to hold on to, knowing that there might be some hope for these two widows. By the time Ruth and Naomi have gotten back to the town of Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth asks Naomi if she can go glean in the fields, and Naomi gives her permission and sends her on her way. Unknowingly, or by chance, as most translations will um, translate it, 
she ends up in the field which belongs to Boaz, this man who is related to Naomi through Elimelech. When Boaz approaches his field, he notices a woman who he doesn't recognize and questions about her. The foreman of the field tells him that she is the Moabite who came back with Naomi and has been taking care of her ever since, that she asked permission to glean and has not stopped working except for a short little rest. I want to point out that, again, we see the incredible character of Ruth. She not only has shown us her courage and faith going with Naomi to this strange land, but now she shows us her incredible work ethic. We see that Ruth has not just gone home with Naomi, but it also keeping her promise in full. Do you remember when she told Naomi in chapter one, where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll stay? Your people should be my people and your God, my God? She is immersing herself in the land, in this community. She is growing where she is planted and gleaning what is harvested. I can't imagine this was an easy transition for her or a fun job. I doubt that she was able to make many friends in um, Judah, but she didn't let that stop her. She was good on her promise to Naomi to live and be in community with her. So in your worship guides, if you'll look at the second question, it reads, are you willing to live in community? When I say live in community, I don't mean just tolerate it or pretend. I mean to embrace it, to embrace the people and to embrace the needs for the first time ever, I heard this term, sleeper city. I want to know if it's just me that didn't know what this meant, but how many of you have heard that term? Okay, a few of you. I don't feel as bad that I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> well, a few weeks ago, I heard Pastor David describe the town of Erie that he lives in as a sleeper city. And I thought to myself, well, are people just lazy? Do they sleep a lot? Is there like, a, like not a good amount of coffee shops in the area? You know, what gives? Um, apparently, a sleeper city is usually um, a suburb that's close to a major city. So for instance, Erie is the sleeper city to Denver because most people just sleep in Erie and then commute to Denver for work during the day. Sleeper cities are known for not really having a lot going on in the town itself. For instance, the New King Super's grocery store that was just put in front of Vista Ridge is a big deal, right? It's pretty cool. <laughs> But for those of you who live in Erie or have kids that go to Vista Ridge, it's probably a real convenience. Rumor has it um, that this King Supers even has a Starbucks in it. But you didn't hear it from me. You heard it from me, who heard it from a very reliable source, <coughs> Courtney McLaughlin. <laughs> so sleeper towns are kind of a place where people live, but they don't really do life. Although Erie might be a sleeper town, there are still many people who are invested in it, invested in its growth. Making a big deal about the new King Supers may seem silly, but it's important. It's investing in a city and in the people who live there. So back to the question, are you willing to live in community? In community of your neighborhood, your town, this church? To build and live in community is to invest in a place and in a people. To be a part of a church community is to be a part of the body of Christ. To realize that it's not just one or some of us, but it's all of us who have a part to play. And all of us must remember that we need each other. Ruth invested in a place with those people. She became a part of the body of Christ in Bethlehem.
At this point in the story, we see Ruth at work in her community. She is not too proud to glean and is working very hard to provide for both herself and Naomi. For those who are, of you who aren't familiar with this farming lingo, <laughs> I had to double check, look up myself. Gleaning means to pick up the leftovers from a harvest. Um, it's also a term used to gain things little bit by little bit, so very difficult. Gleaning, do gleaning doesn't sound like the funnest job, um, walking behind the harvesters, picking up their scraps. It sounds like backbreaking labor. From this chapter, it also sounds like a job for servants. We don't know what Ruth's life looked like before she moved um, to Judah when she was in Moab, um, but we don't know if she had a good social standing. We don't know if she had about the same situation as she does now, but we definitely know that she is still taking a huge part in being involved in this community in whatever way that looks, whether gleaning or whether in a higher level. Ruth works tirelessly to provide food for her unconventional family of just her and Naomi. Boaz hears of this and approaches Ruth. And he says to her in chapter two, so if you wanna read along, he says, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before? The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. So many things jump out um, at this conversation between the two of them, but what I want to focus on right now is that you can tell that Ruth's breaking and redefining of the status quo has caused a ripple effect with Boaz. He treats this foreigner like she was his own servant, if not better. Her life and decisions have been a living example and testimony to all around her, including Boaz. Ruth turns from the field, returns from the field of Boaz well-fed and with an entire sack of barley, much to Naomi's excitement. When Ruth tells her it was Boaz's field where she gleaned, the information of Boaz being a relative of theirs comes out. It's no longer just information that us as the audience and the reader understand, but now it's information we know that Naomi knows and now Ruth knows. In chapter three, we find Naomi putting two and two together that Boaz could marry Ruth. Rather than going herself and suggesting this marriage to Boaz, she instructs Ruth with these words. So if you wanna follow along with me, we're at the beginning of chapter three. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative who these young, who, whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do next. Ruth replies to her mother-in-law in extreme faith and obedience. 
saying, all that you say, I will do. And she does. Ruth goes and does exactly what Naomi has instructed her to do. She goes and uncovers Boaz's feet and lays down. The story continues on in chapter 3. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lie at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he, say, he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you as you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. When Ruth says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, the language here might seem a bit strange or even poetic. But to the ancient Israelite reader, the message was loud and clear. Ruth wasn't asking Boaz to share the covers because she was cold. She was suggesting marriage. The idiom, to be covered by someone's wing or garment, refers to establishing marriage. In his book, The Flame of Yahweh, Richard M. Davidson believes that this is the pivotal point of the story, the heart of the story, he calls it. He says in his book, the story indicates the nature of Ruth's hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word for um, long-loving loyalty. So Ruth's hesed for Naomi. Indeed, her loyalty is given as a model for the hesed compared to the ancient mothers of Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. She is depicted as more desirable than seven sons. Amazingly, she is chosen by God to be one of the progenitors of the Davidic line, the line of the Messiah. In the heart of this narrative, it is Ruth who proposes marriage to Boaz and not Boaz to Ruth. We have seen in the previous chapters that Ruth is courageous, brave, and not afraid to break the status quo. But here, we see all those characteristics tied up in vulnerability. Her actions speak more than just courage, but also transparency. To lay at the feet of a man with no clue if he would reject her or not. Many scholars would conclude that that night, Ruth and Boaz might have consummated their marriage already. And although the questions we have might be interesting and the historical and cultural implications would also be fun to find out, I want to focus on a different underlying theme. What I really want to pull from the story is the vulnerability of Ruth. If we continue on in the story, we find that the closer relative that Boaz mentioned previously did not want to redeem Ruth. He rather just wanted to redeem the land, but not her. She could have found herself in an extremely embarrassing and awkward position if both this um, closer relative and Boaz, neither one of them wanted to redeem her. But this is Ruth we're talking about. Some say she might just not think through her actions. Well, I would say that she is a very courageous and vulnerable woman. Ruth realizes the power of vulnerability. So why is vulnerability so important? C.S. Lewis is so forward as to say, to love is to be vulnerable. And the Bible puts it this way. There is no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Vulnerability is pivotal. It can either be the root of fear, shame, and unworthiness, 
or it can be the wellspring of joy, peace, and belonging. Unfortunately, in many cases, we don't know what the outcome will hold. It'll either be rejection or acceptance, joy or pain, love or indifference. The very definition of vulnerability often focuses on the downsides of the characteristics rather than the positives. Here are some of the most common definitions for vulnerability. Capable of or susceptible to being wounded or hurt, either physically or emotionally. Open to moral attack, criticism, or temptation. Open to assault, difficult to defend. As you can see, vulnerability doesn't necessarily sound like the wellspring of joy, peace, and belonging. It sounds more like a place of rejection and sadness. The status quo of history has taught us to build up walls for physical protection and walls for emotional protection. But our Jesus isn't a God of building up walls, but rather breaking down walls and building up character and relationships. When you think of any of your relationships, your friendships, your marriages, these all have different levels of vulnerability. The closer you are with someone, the more vulnerable you're more likely to get with them and vice versa. Relationships can only be built as high as the vulnerability will go. It is the mortar that holds the bricks together, the nail that connects the two by fours. The art of being vulnerable allows growth. It allows room for this earth to be restored, for the garden to be restored. Now don't get me wrong, vulnerability in the wrong situation or with the wrong person can be foolish, um, and good judgment always has to be used, but it is also the only way to grow in a relationship. So I want to ask you the third recalibrate question. What does vulnerability with Jesus look like? Being vulnerable with Jesus allows you to, re is, allows you to reap the full benefits of relationship with him. But just how do we do that? I think there are three key things in being able to reap this full benefit of the relationship with Jesus and vulnerability. The first one is seeking. You have to know him before you can trust him, right? I believe being vulnerable with Jesus has to do with our understanding of him. If we fully understood him, we would realize just how easy it is to put our trust in him. Jeremiah gives us this encouragement in chapter 29 of his writing, and it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The psalmist is constantly putting in his writings that seeking God and seeking him with your whole heart is the key to success. Vulnerability is not done impartial. It's done with the whole heart. When you seek Jesus, when you really get to know him, his character, and his love for you, trust will automatically be built. Being vulnerable with Jesus means that we not only know him, but we get to know ourselves. Once we know whose we are, we can better understand who we are. And when we know whose we are and who we are, we become less prideful. We don't feel the need to bring others down, to bring ourselves up, because Jesus reminds us that the last shall be first, right? To be able to build up relationships and community that lasts, that is genuine, and that is Jesus-centered, we must first choose to have courage in our vulnerability with him. We must seek to find. Search the heart of Jesus and find it pure and blameless. When we seek Jesus and when 
when we see that he shows us the ultimate example of vulnerability. Being exposed on the cross, putting himself out there to either be accepted by us or rejected, showing us that to love is to be vulnerable. But how do we seek him? What does that really look like? Many times, I think we look to others and how they seek Jesus and try to copy or mimic that. But long term, that does us no good. We're all very different. You think of the Myers-Briggs personality test, spiritual gifts test, strengths quest finder, love language test, the list goes on and on. There are seven main types of learning. You have visual, auditory, linguistic, kinesthetic, logical, social, and solitary. It's much easier to learn when you understand how you learn. Realizing that everyone is different in the way that we think, learn, understand, and love gives us the space to seek Jesus in the way he created us to. When we seek the creator, we are given direct access and understanding to understanding ourselves better because you have to know whose you are before you know who you are. When we learn to seek Jesus in our own personal, unique way, our relationship is authentic and not patterned after someone else's way of seeking him. The second one is abiding. When we're able to seek and find the heart of God, we cannot just stop there. A few years ago, um, when I was driving back to Lincoln from summer break to go to school, I took the long way. I had always just driven through Wyoming, and that was so boring. Um, and so I decided, let's go through South Dakota. And I really wanted to see Mount Rushmore. It sounded like super exciting. I'd seen tons of pictures. I was really pumped. Um, so we pull up, um, and I get outside, and I realize that all those pictures that I saw were taken either really close up or someone had a really, really good zoom on their camera. Because I could probably cover the presidents just with my thumb, like each one of their faces. It was so small and distant. Um, needless to say, I was really bummed out and really disappointed about this. Um, so we didn't really stay for very long. I took a couple pictures, I zoomed in, but my camera wasn't as nice, um, and it just wasn't exactly what I had expected. A couple years later, my best friend Miley visited the same Mount Rushmore that I did. Um, with the same small little president's heads. Um, but our reactions were extremely different, like night and day. Whereas I was pretty disappointed, Miley wept when she saw Mount Rushmore. She's a very emotional person just in general, but she was just so moved by this incredible historical mountain that she cried. And even to this day, talking about it months later, she'll still tear up talking about how, you know, like impressive it was. She gets mad at me when I tell her that I think it's the least impressive thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> well, I took a few photos and left. Miley wept. Um, the thing is that I realized the difference between us two is not only just our personalities or the mountain, because the mountain was the exact same thing, but Miley took the time to abide. She took the time to really be present in the moment and to really feel the historical implications and to feel pride in our country and, you know, they have all the state flags, so she went and found Pennsylvania. It was just a really wonderful moment for her. And so looking back, I realized, wow, I'm kind of bummed out I didn't have that same experience because I didn't take the time to abide. 
We can't rush through the important things in life. We must savor the special moments in the same way that we must savor our moments with God. Jesus explains this in one of his parables about the vine and the branches in the Gospel of John in chapter 15. If you want to read along, um, you can turn to page 999. I know we're doing a lot of uh, swapping around with the Bible, but it's good. We're breaking them in. We're breaking all those pew Bibles in. So in this parable, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit all by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be full in you and that your joy may be full. You see, by abiding in Jesus, we are able to bear fruit, which brings me to number three, reflecting. When we seek and abide, we reflect what we've found. We become secure in whose we are and who we are. Through this, we are able to reflect that love and vulnerability and reap the benefits of it, not just for us, but for others around us. At first, I did make fun of Miley for crying at Mount Rushmore. Um, I still will. I hope she's not listening to this sermon at all. She gets so mad that I make fun of her for it, but in all honesty, I feel like it was my loss. It was my loss for not taking the time to abide And when she abode, she was able to reflect that joy and that incredible experience at Mount Rushmore. When we seek and abide Jesus, abide in Jesus, it shows. It causes those around us to want to seek and abide as well. So back to Ruth. Her courage, her faith, her work ethic, and vulnerability have not been in vain. The story ends with Boaz calling a meeting at the town gate to confront the closer relative. He's interested in redeeming Naomi's land, but not Naomi's new daughter. Boaz takes this opportunity to be the redeemer for both. In chapter 4, verse 13, we are are told that the Lord caused Ruth to conceive a child. And if you remember from last week, this wasn't just any child, but this was Obed. And he grew up to be the father of Jesse, who grew up to be the father of David. And when when you continue down this line and take a look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you're able to see that this is Jesus' genealogy. The power of Ruth's courage and vulnerability moved the story, moved it from grief to joy, from emptiness to fullness. So now I wonder what a courageous 
and vulnerable church could do to move the story. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the incredible gifts you've given us. Thank you for the incredible personalities, the incredible minds, the incredible bodies you've given us, Lord. God, when we look to you, we know that we can have full faith in you, but Jesus, teach us to seek you. Teach us to be vulnerable with you and to build up our faith in you. God, give us the space and the time to abide in you, to really understand who you are and who we are. God, let us reflect you. Let us not leave this place unchanged, God. We don't want to be people who just seek and abide, but we want to be people who reflect your love. We want to show the world who you are and that you're worthy of praise. Jesus, today I pray Ruth's courage and her vulnerability over this church family. I pray it over myself. I pray that you give us the courage to not only break the status quo, but you give us the vulnerability and the humility to redefine it. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.